You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'm going to begin reading with verse 17, picking up right where we left off last time, and read through verse 19, 17 to 19. The Lord is speaking, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Heavenly Father, we look to you and ask, Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us this morning as we look to your word, as we look to you to teach and to guide. Father, we pray, open your word to our hearts. Open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, we considered the painful and discomforting effects of the fall, and our text was verse 16, and our focus was primarily on the effects of the curse on women. Uh, It wasn't our 100% focus, but it was probably 90% of our focus. Uh, You'll recall that I said that rebellion against God always brings pain. It's not, not... Not 20% of the time, not 50% of the time, not 75% of the time, 100% of the time. It always does that. Always, always. And this is not because God is some kind of cosmic ogre or some big ogre, you know, in the sky just waiting for us to slip up so that he can hammer us. Um, That's not it at all. There is an impregnable law in the universe that says and states that the wages of sin is death. And there's simply no way around it. God is holy. You've heard me say this many times. God is holy and just. And by the way, I love it when I hear you guys repeating that. You know, Once in a while I'll hear you saying something like, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were like, God is love. You know, I said, well, yeah, you can only be loved because he's holy and just. And you'll repeat repeating this to me. Hey, keep it up. I love it. It's absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful. Because folks aren't hearing that. And it really, those of you who are sharing that, and I know many of you are, you, you get these stares, don't you? Um, they haven't even never heard it. They haven't thought of it. Um, and you're doing the work of the Lord every time you do it. Um, God is holy and just. Heaven is a holy place. It's where perfect righteousness dwells. And, you know, we're all wired for this. I mean, all of us are wired for this. And you might say, what do I mean by that? Well, every time somebody does something wrong to us, what do we want? We want the wrong to be made right, don't we? That isn't fair. We say that when we're kids. I mean, from the, as soon as we can pronounce those words, that's not fair. We know that when we can hardly say many more words than that. We know something's wrong and it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be right. It's because we're wired up for righteousness. But the interesting thing about us is when we do wrong to others, we want mercy. We want justice when it's the other guy. We want mercy when it's us. And we're a bit schizophrenic that way, aren't we? Um, Very much so. Uh, We want to make a case that 
you know, justifies our actions, lessening our guilt. We want to try to justify our guilt. We want to try to justify the things that we've done. We want to try to wiggle our way out. Uh, but the bottom line is there's this law in the universe. And it, it's, it's, it's this simple. The wages of sin is death. And it states that the slightest infraction of God's commandments, you know, brings us to the bar of his justice. And if we try to change that, uh, any effort to try to change that will involve us trying to cross over a boundary that we have no business trying to cross over. Because as we try to change that, what we are doing in essence is saying, I am no longer the creature who has to listen to the creator. No, I am going to be like the creator and I am going to live my life my way. I think it's quite interesting that I'm told, I haven't done the research myself, but I've been told from a couple of very accurate sources, that one of the most popular songs at funerals today is the song, My Way. Nothing could be prouder and more blatant against God than having my way played at a funeral. My way. I'm going to do it my way. Not your way. My way. That's crossing over a boundary that we have no business crossing over. Now, when we turn to Genesis chapter 3, we find that Eve had taken matters into her own hands. She steps forward into a role that's outside of her boundaries. She eats from the forbidden fruit. She gives thumbs to her husband. He, in turn, eats from the forbidden fruit. And now in our fallenness, we don't think this is a big deal. I can remember reading this as a kid thinking, well, she got her hands in the cookie jar. We don't think this is such a big deal. Listen to the way Jude describes it. Speaking of fallen angels, he says they did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. They left their proper dwelling. That's what, that's what Satan did. That's what the fallen angels did. In other words, the sin of the demons was they left that proper dwelling. They, they crossed over that boundary. They crossed over that, that line in the sand. And Eve has left her proper dwelling. If you back up to verse 6 of chapter 3, where we see she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And here is an attempt to cast off the place that God had assigned for her. She was under the authority of God. She was under the authority of her husband. You know, even the proud ocean waves, and, and, and I promised you, Liz, I'd talk about the ocean today. Even the proud ocean waves, those big waves, you know, they're, they're like unstoppable and uh, they're unsurpassed in power. They're, they're very powerful. You, you get out there and you play in them and you see how powerful those waves are. Even those proud waves, they only go to a certain place, to a certain line where God has said, listen, you can come to here. You can come to this place, but there you're going to stop and there you're going to retreat and go back. 
And they very faithfully, so faithfully do they come to that boundary line and stop at that boundary line and go back out to where they come from. So faithfully do they do this that you can, you can predict the tide with great position, uh, precision. And those of you who, who go to the beach know this. Those of you who go to the beach. Oh, the beach. Wouldn't it be nice to be at the beach right now? It would be nice to be at the beach. But back to Eve. She stepped outside of the lines, and this is true of, of us all. Each, each one of us has attempted to live our lives our way. Now, this is certainly true of Adam. He's under the authority of God. He is assigned to be God's vice regent in the created world. He's like an ambassador there. You know, he's not, the, he's not there to be free to live his life any way he wants. He's there to, he's there to walk in fidelity with God and to walk in imitation of God. But when we turn to Genesis 3, what do we discover? As I said last week, while Satan comes into the garden and he's all over Eve, what is Adam doing? He's not doing anything. He's doing nothing. He's, he's, he's assuming no leadership. He's... He's standing passively by. Now, over the course of my ministry, I've had plenty of occasions to talk with with men who, who, you know, they'll complain that their wives are controlling or they'll complain that their, their, you know, their their wives rule the roost or their wives are always telling them what to do and they have no say. And I've had plenty of conversations like this. And, and you know, I've noticed some commonalities among men who speak this way, and this is a broad brush. I'm not saying that everybody that speaks this way is going to be equally guilty of all these things. These are generalizations. It's a broad brush. But uh, if I might speak with a broad brush, in most of these cases, these men won't lead. They, they just won't lead. And because they won't lead, their wives are leading. And instead of trying to change it, they throw their wives under the bus on a regular basis. It's all her fault. She did it. That woman you gave to be with me, she did it. If you, in, as I've encouraged them to begin to start leading, just take baby steps and start leading, I've heard phrases like this. Oh, I've learned just to keep my mouth shut. Or um, it's easier just to go along. Well, of course it's easier just to go along. It's always easier just to go along, isn't it? It's always the easy thing to do. I mean, it's, this is excuse making for failure to lead. And of course it's easier to go along. It's always easier. And it pushes all the blame on the wife. I mean, it's always hard work to do the right thing, isn't it? You ever notice that? Like there's two roads you can take. This one seems to be like a lot clearer, a lot more open, a lot wider, more broad. There seems to be a lot more people on it. And then there's that other road. Not so many people on that one, and it looks steep, and it looks tough. And that's the way it always is, isn't it? Well, um, it's hard work sitting down and lovingly talking things through. And I'll repeat that. It's hard work sitting down and lovingly talking things through. Sitting down with the Word of God and aligning your household with its instructions and aligning, aligning your household with its guidelines. That's hard work. And, you know, as you do that, expect resistance. You're going to get resistance. You're always going to get resistance. But here's the thing. What melts hearts? And I'm speaking to the fellows in the room right now. What melts hearts? 
What melts hearts is loving your wife the way Christ loves the church and giving yourself up for her the way he gave himself up. I, I shared with you last week that I've, I've shared this stuff at weddings, you know, in, in what I'll call hostile audiences, audiences that are, are un, largely, probably primarily unbelieving audiences that have no appetite for this kind of thing. But yet when I get to the part and I get to the charge of the husband, I say, no, husband, Mr. Husband, you're called to love her like Christ loved the church. And what does that involve? That means you are willing to jump in front of a bus to protect her. And I've watched those scowls and those eyes that were on me for the whole talk begin to melt. That's because there's a deep desire to be loved that way. I can speak to the ladies. Am I right about that? Is there a deep desire on your part to be loved like that? You're wired for this thing, aren't you? Of course you are. And that's why these talks have to be lovingly and they have to be sacrificial. We need to be on about giving ourselves to our wives. And I know men who would much rather complain, but they're walking in the footsteps of Adam. They're simply walking in the footsteps of Adam. Now, last week, we took up the curse of the fall as it pertains to women. This morning, we take it up as it pertains to men. Although we're going to discover as we do this, as Adam, as the Lord speaks to Adam, we're going to see overlap here. You're, you know, men, you, you know, as you're listening to this, you're going to say, okay, okay, I got this one. But, but ladies, as you're listening, you're going to say, you know what? This isn't just affecting him. This is affecting me. That's correct. Uh, there's, there's overlap here. So I'm just, I'm just saying that so that after the service, someone will say, you know, it seems like it affects us too. Yeah, it does. There's overlap. Uh, so let's, let's look. Let's, let's listen to the Lord's voice as he speaks to Adam. Verse 17, to Adam, the Lord said, because you have listened to your wife. Do you see that in the text? Because you have listened to your wife. Now, before I expound on this, I want to offer a disclaimer here. The sin here is not listening to the wife. Well, someone say, wait a second. Let me read it again. What does it say? It says, because you've listened to your wife. That's right. That's what it says. But the sin here is not listening to your wife. We'll say, Rick, have you lost your mind? Are you, are you, gonna te- are you now going to teach something that's not biblical? Now, let me explain. Let me explain here. The sin here is not listening to our wives. If we use a verse like this to teach that under no circumstances men are to listen to their wives, then we are abusing this passage of Scripture. That's not what's going on here. Uh, that's not what's going on here at all. Tammy has saved my butt on so many occasions, I can't even tell you. Dozens and dozens of time, times. And Robin's sitting back there. She's smiling from ear to ear. She knows exactly why. Tammy has been able to see things. Like, let me just use an example from ministry. Tammy has been able to see things that I couldn't see. Um, different people who've come down the pike that I've tried to help. And she called me aside and she said, you're being taken advantage of. And I, I'm thinking, well, man, the Lord's in this. Man, look what's going on. Well, you know, I don't know if, to what degree the Lord's in this here. He's in this. But what I do know is you're getting taken advantage of here. And she has helped me. And I would have been a fool not to listen to her. I'd have been an absolute fool. She was attempting to watch out for me. She was not attempting to control me, even in the slightest. Now, here's an idea. I'm going to introduce something. It's the idea of compliment. It's an idea of compliment. Uh, a good husband compliments his wife and a good wife compliments the husband. Now, let me also make a disclaimer here. I'm not using, I'm not pushing the word compliment so far that I'm suggesting that a person is incomplete 
with if, if, if you're single, you're somehow incomplete. I'm not saying that. Uh, most pastors that I know who are married would quickly admit that they'd be less effective if they didn't have their wives. That having been said, there are pastors out there like uh, John Stott, who was single all his life, and he had a very effective ministry. God called, God has called me to be married. He has called me into a relationship with Tammy. We've been, we've been called together and we complement each other in this calling. John Stott was called to singleness. John Stott was no less, no less complete as a single pastor than I am uh, as a married pastor. So I want to make that, I want to make that clear. I'm not pressing compliment to that degree. Um, but what I mean is the wife can beautifully compliment her husband and husband can beautifully compliment his wife in the way that enhances and helps. Enhances and helps. And the idea that God puts two together in order to compliment them, um, this, in this sense, the, the husband has to listen to his wife. Uh, but besides that, think about it. If we are going to love our wives as Christ loved the church, are we going to be able to do that without listening? very carefully but what are her desires what does she like how does how does she want the household to look what does she want it to look like you know, what, what you know what, what does she have in this yeah, sacrificial love dictates that we're going to be listening and listening and listening to her voice are we not all the time course. So biblical headship involves listening. Sacrificial love involves listening. But back to our text, the Lord says to Adam, because you've listened to your wife. Now, what in the world is, what in the world is God talking about? Well, in the garden, there were two voices competing with each other. There was a voice from heaven, from the throne room of God that said, don't eat from that tree. And there was another voice and it was from hell and it was from the throne of Satan and it said, eat from that tree. And Eve bought into that second voice and she brought that message to her husband, Adam. And when Adam heard that voice, he should not have listened. He should not have listened. There's a a tremendous amount of lessons in that right now. We're we're just putting a first coat of paint on the wall, if you will. Um, I don't want to burden you too much going into too much detail there, but that's what's in view here. Adam listened to that satanic message that was communicated to him uh, from Eve. He should have assumed leadership and said no. He should have assumed leadership and told Satan no. But he didn't. Now, uh, the Lord pronounces curses here. And that's what our, our passage is largely about. Verses 17, 18, and 19. And there are three basic parts to it. And the first part is that work now becomes frustrated. If you look, um, at, if you continue in verse 17, the Lord says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. There's so much to say about this than we have time for this morning. But let me say this. Adam's in the, he's in the agricultural business. You know, he's in the farming business. Well, guess what? A lot of change is taking place in the farming business now. Uh, he's going to be cast out of Eden and he's going to have to go out into the fields 
and growing things out in the fields, if you look at verse 18, uh, it's going to be frustrating. Why? Because thorns and thistles are going to be popping up everywhere. And I mean, we can deduce from this that prior to the fall, the beautiful Garden of Eden would have easily produced this luscious fruit. It would have been beautiful. Well, the flowers and the fruit and everything are pra- practically, I think, beyond our conception and imagination. But now, I mean, those of you who are into gardening or lawn care or anything of the like, uh, you realize that you don't have to do anything to the weeds, do you? You ever notice that? In fact, you can do everything you can to those weeds and they just keep a coming, don't they? You can't hardly kill them or get rid of them, can you? You know, people pretty soon, I mean, it, it's, it's a wonder, winter wonderland out there now, but before long, I mean, that grass is going to be growing again and people are going to be spraying their yards with this stuff, this weed killer stuff, you know, trying to kill those weeds. It's a constant battle because them weeds, they just spring up on their own. Thorns and thistles and... But the flowers, the fruit and the vegetables or the grass, this requires constant constant care and nurture. You know, thinking of the beach, I know so many of you like the beach, you know. Have you ever seen those things they call sand spurs? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Sand spur? If you take your dog to the beach, you'll know what they are right away. Because your dog, as soon as your dog gets off the road and walks into the sand anywhere, um, off the shorefront, in any of those yards, um, he or she's going to be yelping and limping because there's going to be this little round ball stuck in their paws with these just, they're unbelievably sharp little thorns. You can't hardly get them out of their paws. And the locals call them sand spurs. And I guess that if you like get some of these things on your clothes or something, you take them back to your house, they'll grow anywhere. And you end up with these things in your yard. Um, They grow everywhere. Thorns and thistles, they're extremely sharp. Um, last time I was at the beach, I had to carry my dog around because he kept getting those things in his paws. This is all part of the part of the curse. It's all part of the curse. Work is now going to become frustrating. More about that in just a moment. Second thing, work becomes hard and unpleasant. If you look at verse 19, the Lord says to Adam, by the, set, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. By the sweat of your face. I mean, Adam will no longer eat from the beautiful garden where work was pleasant. Uh, he now will have to cultivate out in the field where there are rocks and the ground is hard. It will be backbreaking work. It's it's going to be un, there's going to be some unpleasantries about it. And the third thing is that the end is death. You know the Lord had told Adam that if he ate from the forbidden fruit, he would die. And now here's the curse, verse 19. The Lord says to Adam, you know, basically your your work's going to be hard and frustrating. He says, quote, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The end of it is death. So, how does all this work its way out in the lives here in the 21st century? There isn't a person in this room who makes their living farming. Uh, We might have gardens and we might have little things on the side, but we're not in the agricultural business. So how how does this apply to us? How does this apply... You know, if we work at the school or we work at Giant Eagle or wherever it is that we work, how does this apply to us? Well, tomorrow morning you're going to get up and it's going to be Monday. (laughs) Some of us are on different schedules. Maybe later today you're going to be going to work. I don't know, but assuming that you're Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, is Monday your favorite day? Like Monday morning? 
Why not? I mean, you got like, you got the whole thing ahead of you, you know? It starts all over again. This is like the beginning of a whole other week of what? It's the grind, isn't it? It's the grind. And, um, you know, uh, l- let me say this before I go any further. Work itself is not the curse. We're not being punished by being put to work. It's not like God said, okay, you know, now you're going to be working this chain gang. and You know, you're going to be in striped suits and you're going to be swinging hammers at railroad ties now. That, that's not what's going on here. Uh, work is sacred. Work is, uh, in heaven, we're going to have work to do. It's going to be pleasing, fulfilling. Uh, work is not the punishment. What the punishment is, is that work is now going to become hard. It's going to become frustrating. Them kids are going to be bad at school. And they're going to drive their young teacher nuts. So what? So um, it, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow, um, and it's going to be it's going to be hard, and it's going to be unpleasant. We're going to injure our bodies doing it. We're going to get hurt doing it sometimes. Uh, we're going to lose our tempers sometimes, um, and you know we're going to have very many bad days. And sometimes we might even lose our jobs and our ability to do our jobs. And, you know, this is exceptionally hard for men losing their jobs. And I can, you know, I can speak from personal experience of this. I mean, I used to provide more than enough income to care for our family. It's easy to go forward. It's very difficult to go backward. Uh, That's very difficult to do. And one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a husband and father is to lose his ability to care for his family. It really is. I mean, it, 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 that's one of the most dangerous things that can happen. Why? Because bitterness, frustration, and anger just consume. They can consume. And unfortunately, many men never get out of that. They never work their way. They just never, they never get out of it. And um, I, mean, I saw my grandfather. I saw a change take place in him. I think it was around 1982. I was a teenager. And I... You know, he lost his job at Crucible. He was a hard worker. He was a conscientious worker. He would have been the guy that would have been there early. He would have been the guy, well, he would have been the guy that was working all the time. And he lost his, he lost his job. And he lost his job at a place where he was, he was really not old enough to retire, but old enough that nobody wanted to hire him either. And, I mean, he was just at this place. And it, it really did change his personality in many in many ways, it's it's hard. It's 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 very very difficult. Um, so men who are injured have to step backwards to low-paying jobs. Tough men who are disabled have to sit and try to make it on disability. This is hard. So, you know, about this time in the message, we got to ask ourselves: Is there a word of grace here? I mean, verses seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen. That's even verse sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. These are hard verses, aren't they? Is there a word of grace here? Yepper. Jesus was a carpenter. I actually couldn't wait to say that. I've been really excited and I couldn't wait to get to this part and say, yeah, there's a word of grace here. Jesus was a carpenter. Some of us said, what? Jesus was a carpenter. I said, well, what's that got to do with it? Well, it's got so much to do with it. Have you thought about that lately, that Jesus was a carpenter? How many thought, like this morning, you got out this morning and said, Jesus was a carpenter, man. He was a carpenter. Anybody think that? Has anybody thought that in the last month? Jesus was a carpenter. Guess what? Jesus was 
carpenter. Now, why, why, would, why would I start with this? Well, who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh, isn't he? God takes on the person of Jesus Christ and he comes down here and he takes up a vocation as a carpenter. And as per his human nature, Jesus had to learn the trade from his adoptive father. And he undoubtedly witnessed beads of sweat, smashed fingers, calloused hands, splinters, and the whole nine yards. And I spent a little bit of time this week, you know, trying to, I mean, did Jesus ever smash his fingers? I don't know the answer to that. Most people in that kind of trade have smashed their fingers. In fact, you don't do it very long before. That's like one of the first things you got to do is smash your fingers. You know, I remember like, from early childhood, I, here's hammer, here's finger, smash. It's the first thing you do. Um, but I'm not perfect. Jesus was perfect. Did he smash his finger? I don't know. I don't want to get too lost in that. But he certainly sweat. Uh, sweat ran down his face. Why do I start here? Because for two reasons. One, we do not have a high priest who is unable to relate with our struggles. Whether you're working you know, for Kent State University or wherever it is that you're working, Jesus can relate completely uh, with, your, with your struggles. You have a Savior who understands completely. But here's the real reason. There's a better reason why I start here. Because Jesus was a carpenter, but his identity wasn't carpenter. Did you get that? Jesus was a carpenter, but his identity is not a carpenter. His identity is son of God. He was a carpenter for a period of time, a very short period of time. Being a carpenter is how he earned a living during that short period of time. Being a carpenter was his vocation. Son of God is his identity. We have a tendency to get this confused. and it's to, it's to, Satan loves that. He loves to do that, to especially men. Get that confused. You are what you do. And why does he want to do that to us so badly? Because he wants to set us up to fall. Because what happens when you can't do what you do? Creates an identity crisis. Complete identity. Who am I now that I can't be a carpenter? Who am I now that I can't be a mechanic? Who am I now that I can't teach school? Am I of any use? Am I any good? Well, listen, one thing that has really helped me over the years is... You know, my vocation, I'm bivocational. Obviously, I'm a preacher. And prior to that, I've made most of my living being a, kind of a technician slash businessman. These are ways that, that I've made a living over these years. But these, are, these things are not my identity. My identity is I am the son of Rick and Patty Anderson. That is my identity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is my identity. The other things are vocational. It's how we make a living for a brief period of time. The other stuff is just a calling for a period of time that's going to be set aside. But the identity is eternal. There's never going to be a time in all eternity where I will not be the son of Rick and Patty Anderson or a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm just using myself as an example so you can put yourself in the blank and you can put your parents in the blank. This is our identity. And 
Really, how long do we do what we do? We don't do it very long. But we need to make sure that we understand that vocation is vocation. And identity is identity. We have to make those decisions. Jesus was a carpenter, but none of you thought about that this morning, did you? How many thought about Jesus being the son of God this morning? Well, that's what we've been singing about, isn't it? That's his identity. That's who he is. Being a carpenter is what he did. We always got to keep that, that distinction. Fellas, when we get this mixed up, we're in trouble. Uh, we're in trouble. Is there a word of grace here? Sure. Jesus, uh, Jesus came to reverse the curse upon his people. Tomorrow morning, we'll get back to the grind and remember the frustrating, blood-sweating aspects of work are only temporary if you're in Christ. Tomorrow's grind, or maybe it's this afternoon, your grind begins, whatever your schedule is. That's temporary if you're in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus accomplishes salvation at the cross and he's in the process of working out a complete, the completion of the new heavens and the new earth. We will work there. We will have things that we do there. They'll be enjoyable. They'll be fruitful. They'll be pleasant. They'll give us great joy. We look to Christ and we see that he's in control. And, and you know, anyone listening to this, I mean, people are listening to these messages online. I don't know if someone will listen who's disabled or someone who's listened where they've worked for X amount of years, learned a trade, got good at a trade, and then their industry vanished. That happens. Um, what do we do? Well, listen, Jesus is in control of that. And this life is boot camp for heaven. That's what it is. What, what is God doing with us? He's preparing us for heaven. This isn't heaven. Uh, we try to make it into heaven, but this isn't it. This is boot camp. When a soldier goes into boot camp, he doesn't stay in boot camp very long. He goes to boot camp for a period of time, but most of his career as a soldier is not in boot camp. It's a period of time. We're in boot camp. Very little of our time with the Lord is going to be spent doing what we're doing right now. Very little of it. So let's not let this little speck of time that we're enduring right now blind us from the fact that we have an eternity with God. And all of the things that we suffer in this life, the things that are going on to us in this life, the things that are happening to us in life are boot camp. Boot camp for what? Boot camp for heaven. Boot camp sucks. It's hard. It sucks. Pardon my French. It is what it is. I don't like it. Do you like it? It's temporary. It's temporary. Say that tomorrow morning. Man, this is temporary. Okay, Lord. And you have a whole different way of looking at it. All right, Lord. All right. To, to do with, to show me what you want me to learn here. I mean, this is what it is. And uh, it's a whole, it'll, it won't have mastery over you like it does if you look at it that way. Whatever it is, it, it could be any number of a hundred things. And that leads me to my closing thought. We must keep eternity in the picture. Because if we only focus on the present circumstances, we're going to feed these three friends, their close cousins, bitterness, anger, and despair. We're going to feed those guys. Don't feed those guys. We got to tell ourselves all the time, don't feed those guys. How do we keep from feeding those guys? We look at eternity. We quit focusing on this like it's everything and we look to eternity. We look at eternity. You know, 
These guys, these three cousins, they feed on a worldly focus. They feed on it. They get strength and they get strong as we focus on this world. But a heavenly focus causes their influence to lessen and it can even cause it to vanish. The hymn writer says, you know, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world, they have this tendency to grow strangely dim, don't they? And those are our marching orders as we go through this boot camp, uh, through this period of time, suffering the consequences of the fall. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, these are temporary. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that you have, even in the midst of such a strong word of rebuke and curse, Father, there is so much grace. The fact that you were speaking to Eve and then to Adam is gracious. Uh, That you didn't just come into the garden and just destroy them is gracious. And through them you speak to us this morning, Father. And it is marvelous. It is merciful. It is gracious. We thank you and praise you, Father. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us, Father, as we look to these things. Help us, O Father, to realize that Jesus has reversed the curse. He has accomplished salvation. And the new heavens and the new earth will be complete in your time. And these things are all temporary. Father, we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.